Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. This week, I'm doing two special events in New York City to talk about my new book, How to Train a Happy Mind. One with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. We've also just launched a new online community this week called Train a Happy Mind, where I'm leading weekly live meditations for all the topics from the book that anyone can join for free or by donation. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book events and our new community. I look forward to seeing you there. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. In this week's episode, we're talking about an analytical meditation technique called equanimity. I've also started to call this technique by another term, spiritual democracy, because it's rooted in the principle of universal human rights. Equanimity helps us balance out our feelings toward the people we label as friends, enemies, and strangers. It's a radical extension of the slogan, Think Globally, Act Locally, where you begin first with your own mind, genuinely cultivating a sense of respect and acceptance for all people. Equanimity is an amazing and powerful technique, and it's one of my very favorite meditations. It's a technique we don't hear as much about when compared to meditating on compassion or mindfulness. But in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, equanimity is seen as a step that you must undertake before cultivating compassion or love. Because otherwise, your mind remains biased in its feelings toward others. We can easily observe our bias when we read the news each day. How do we feel when we read the news about the latest injustice in the world? Each of us likely has done this today, or certainly this week, and usually we feel angry. And not just abstractly angry, but often directed at a particular person who we blame for the problem. A politician, a CEO, a corrupt police official, or a criminal, a terrorist, or a racist. A person we could easily describe as our enemy. This person is harming us. They're harming others. They're harming the country. They're harming specific genders and races, immigrants, refugees, public health, or the environment. In our personal life, how do we feel when someone hurts us? This happens regularly to many of us in our intimate relationships, but we tend to quickly forgive our friends and family members or our co-workers because the benefits we receive from them outweigh the harms. However, the people that hurt us habitually or severely we start to consider our enemies. People who compete with us unfairly at work, who say hurtful things to us, who slander us behind our backs. Even in our immediate family, a partner or a child or a parent's actions can cause such sustained pain that we eventually need to find some distance from them, to build up protective walls, to consider them not someone who helps us, but someone who harms. Many of us have experienced this pain through an ex-partner who now thinks only of our worst qualities, who spreads negative gossip about us with others, who hurts our reputation. 
Or we have neighbors that we fight with over sound, space, parking. Or we have conflicts with colleagues and family who have different beliefs than ours. We can't understand how they could believe and vote for people and causes that we consider unjust and cruel. But when we're angry, when we're thinking heatedly about our enemy, does it feel good? Is this a state of mind that's beneficial? Is this a state of mind that we want to repeat? Many people firmly say yes. Many people on all sides of an issue say that anger and righteousness motivate positive action and catalyze change. But is it really necessary to feel angry in order to be motivated for your cause? Once, at a teaching with the Dalai Lama, I heard someone ask him whether anger wasn't powerful and motivating, whether it wasn't helpful to drive you to fight for your cause. His Holiness paused for a while, and then he said, sure, anger's motivating, but it's like taking a drug, like amphetamines that give you energy, but have negative side effects that in the long term are harmful to your everyday well-being. Anger doesn't feel good. Anger is motivating, but it can quickly spiral out of control, clouding our good judgment and making us feel terrible and even do terrible things. The persistent anger that we feel toward enemies can spill out to break up our good relationships with friends and family. And science says that the stress of habitual anger can lead to physical illness and even death. What the Dalai Lama said is that there's a purer motivation, one that gives you just as much energy but doesn't have the side effects of anger, and that's compassion, a topic we'll take up in a later episode. First comes equanimity, the topic of this week, where we simply try to equalize our feelings toward others. I was listening to Tara Brock's beautiful podcast last week, and she addressed this topic in a way that was so gentle and embracing. She said that, yes, a period of anger is necessary to energize and to armor ourselves, especially if we've been abused or traumatized. She also said that it's a setup for shame to think that we have to immediately forgive someone who's hurt us. But overall, she said that what we need to realize is that anger is an initial powerful signal of something deeper that underlies the anger. And at some point, we need to connect with what that is. The technique we're sharing today is for that moment when you're ready. When the initial flare of energizing, armoring anger has dissipated, and you're ready to courageously dive below your surface feelings and beyond a view centered on yourself to take in the bigger picture. It's a bigger picture that offers massive rewards, enlarging our feelings of connection with everyone, even our enemies. With practice, this type of meditation offers a sustained sense of happiness and peace of mind that can't be disturbed by others' words and actions. Yet this practice doesn't leave you indifferent to harmful actions or without discrimination between right and wrong. With a motivation of the equality of all beings, you become an even more powerful force for good in the world who doesn't get tripped up in the whirlpools of strong anger or attachment toward enemies or friends. You realize that friends and enemies and strangers are far more changeable and impermanent than our mind tricks us into believing. The Buddhist view is that we categorize people into a friend, enemy, or stranger based on how they treat us. A friend is someone who helps us. 
who we feel happy when we see them. Someone we go out of our way to help, who seems to only want our happiness, and in return, we only want them to be happy. Friendship can extend to people we don't know personally, but who we admire. People we see as benefiting the world, advocating for causes we believe in, bringing about positive social change, caring for others like Tara Brach, or taking care of our planet. In this framework, a friend is anyone who strives toward actions and beliefs that we identify with, that we approve of, and that we see as benefiting ourselves and the people we care about. An enemy is someone who harms us, who goes against our wishes, who says things that displease us. They may do this because they have different beliefs than us or different values, or they may harm for more personal reasons, motivated by past conflicts, resentment, jealousy, or revenge. It's funny how some of the gentlest people come to talks and meditations about how to deal with anger. I've even had people come up after a guided meditation and say the hardest part for them was coming up with an enemy. But an enemy doesn't have to be personal. We each have broader enemies in the world. Leaders who pursue policies we hate, criminals like mass shooters who kill innocent people and children, police officers who violate the rights of the communities they're supposed to protect, or anyone opposing what we believe is right and just in life. Each of us can name specific people in the world doing what we feel is drastic harm to our country, immigrants, minorities, women, the environment, or humanity as a whole. I'd like to think that you can listen to this podcast wherever you are on the political spectrum and benefit from it. These meditations work whether you're far right or far left, Republican or Democrat. Suffering from anger and benefiting from its antidotes seems to cross party lines and is another way in which we're all equal. And then what about strangers? Strangers are people who don't harm or help us. People who we pass on the street or in our cars, clerks in stores, the person beside you on the bus or in a movie theater, workers at the side of the road. Since they don't seem to directly impact your life positively or negatively, you tend to have indifferent feelings toward them. We hardly notice them, and we're generally unconcerned about their welfare. The Buddhist point of view is that the biased way of feeling differently about friends, enemies, and strangers is at odds with reality. That our labels of friend, enemy, and stranger are only based on how those people at any moment harm me, hurt me, or of no concern to me. It's a self-centered point of view that mistakes the momentary personal value of someone to our immediate well-being as a hard and fast label of their very nature. At the dawn of the founding of the United States of America, there was a radical innovation in thinking about human rights. It's hard not to look back at this now cynically, where many of these founders were slaveholders and where voting was limited to property-holding white males in a country that disenfranchised its indigenous population. But the founding principles themselves are simple and profound. They were copied around the world, and other democracies inspired by these principles in many ways implemented them better than we did. Now, in the United States, we're gradually advancing to uphold the universal human rights we embody in words. Still, it's worth stating these principles from the Declaration of Independence plainly to show how simple and profound they are and how much they parallel 
the Buddha's insights. Everyone is equal. Everyone has the right to their life. Everyone has the right to be free. Everyone has the right to pursue happiness. These were new radical ideas at the time, when for thousands of years before, your rights were wholly determined by the whims of which dictator you happened to be born under. These points have many similarities with the Buddhist understanding of both suffering and equanimity. Where our democratic values trail off is in the pursuit of happiness, because people's delusions can drive them to pursue their own happiness in ways that harm others, even to the point of wholly depriving others of those same rights through grotesque actions like slavery, the vast unequal hoarding of wealth, or destroying our shared environment. We can see how many of the worst atrocities in the world were committed by people who firmly believed that what they were doing was for the greater good of humanity. Like Hitler, or Mao, or Stalin, people in the pursuit of their own conviction of what would bring global happiness. But most of us would agree that they had a profoundly deluded understanding of the true causes of happiness. What Buddhism offers is a particular path to the fourth point, a path to genuine happiness. We all have the right to pursue happiness, but we often pursue happiness with ill-conceived actions that instead cause suffering for both ourselves and for others. Buddhism also has a particular take on the first point, that everyone is equal. In general, what Buddhism says is that we don't tend to see others equally, as we just finished discussing, but rather from a biased point of view, based on whether they're helpful, harmful, or useless to us personally. The Buddhist view is that the realistic pursuit of happiness requires seeing through our biases. We don't just limply parrot the abstract principle that all people are equal. And we don't rely on the government to equalize all people either, while firmly clutching our wallet as we rush past a homeless person. We cultivate a heartfelt everyday experience of genuinely seeing people as equals, feeling this in our own heart. The Buddhist term for this meditation and the feeling it brings about in us is equanimity. And as I mentioned, I also like to call it spiritual democracy because it's so wholly aligned with the secular principles of equal rights and universal human rights. The Buddhist view is that cultivating a deeply felt everyday view of seeing people equally brings us a profound sense of everyday well-being. There's a way to cultivate this view, a mental exercise, that gets us out of our bias point of view and into the minds of others through the power of imagination and empathy. It's a path to seeing the ever-changing nature of relationships, avoiding getting stuck in a fixed view of our fluid relationships to others. We'll go over this way of seeing right now as a kind of story, and next week we'll dive deeper with a dedicated meditation on equanimity. One approach to cultivate equanimity is to look at how our enemies and strangers appear to others. Our enemies aren't universally despised. Each of our personal enemies has a mother, a father, often a loving partner, possibly children who love them more than anyone in the world. They have best friends and friendly colleagues. They're loved and they love. Think about a personal enemy if you have one, and notice how you may have completely forgotten this, that your enemy is surrounded by people who love them. Notice how in your biased view, based on a personal conflict, that's a tiny percentage of your shared lives, 
how this conflict has completely warped your ability to have a three-dimensional understanding of this person, your enemy. Also consider those you see as bigger threats to the world. Politicians who are doing harm, people destroying the environment, corporate leaders. Each of these people has a mother, a father, perhaps a loving partner, children. People with great power have thousands and often millions of admirers. The politician you hate has millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of fans. Fans who think that he or she is one of the greatest people on earth. For many of these admirers, it would be a lifelong dream to shake your despised enemy's hand and to commemorate that event on the wall of their home in a framed photograph. You may notice how your mind twists away from this understanding, that your mind clings to its bias. But following this train of thought is coming to accept reality. With nonviolent communication, we learn how, in a healthy conversation, you can repeat what someone said without agreeing with it. And similarly, here you can accept that your enemies are loved and admired without loving and admiring them yourself. Doing this helps you achieve a more balanced view of the person and may even help you gain insights into how to more effectively oppose your enemy's beliefs without falling into the trap of angry, polarizing delusion. There's a way to equalize our feelings towards strangers, too, when we consider how others view them. These strangers, the people who we buy our coffee from, who we pass on the street, who clean our bathrooms, who build our roads, they are all also dearly loved and respected. They likely have a mother who loves them more than anyone else in the world, who'd gladly die themselves if they had to in order to keep their children alive. Each of these strangers has a loving partner, admiring friends, devoted children, respected colleagues. They have fun, they have fears, they have dreams, and they each have their own collection of friends, enemies, and strangers. From their view, you are the stranger, which leads us to the next point, how friends, enemies, and strangers see themselves. Returning to the Declaration of Independence, we notice how it makes the same proclamations as the Buddha. Everyone has the right to be happy. No one wants to suffer. We're all the same in this. And when we recall that our enemy also only wants to be happy and not to suffer, it softens and humanizes them. Just like us, our enemy wants to be happy, but they choose ineffective methods to achieve happiness. They make decisions they think will cause happiness, but instead causes other suffering, and often their own. Do the most powerful, fearsome people on earth seem genuinely happy with the torment they cause others, and with the criticism they receive? Are the actions they're taking really making themselves happy, much less others? If you could wave a wand and bestow happiness upon even your worst enemies, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't granting them happiness stop their harmful action immediately, cause them to relax, to become content and open and peaceful? This alone can be a good motivator to wish good on your enemies. If they were truly happy, they'd stop harming others. Now think of strangers and how they see themselves. Starting with a subset of people can help show off the absurdity of our biased point of view. When we think of all the people sick and aging in the world, do we really want to discriminate among them? 
Imagine facing 100 people in a nursing home suffering from cancer or infected by COVID-19. Would you really discriminate in helping one or the other based on how well you got along? Each of their suffering is the same. By seeing from others' points of view, we can see that it makes no sense to discriminate in our affection and kindness toward others. There's no logic for us to be biased. Another way of dissolving our hard view of friend, enemy, and stranger is to recall the changeability of relationships, their impermanence. Our enemy appears as if he or she will always be an enemy. But in your own life, can you recall times that a personal enemy became a friend? Or, over time apart, as your lives diverged, how they slowly dissolved into a distant stranger, like a bully from grade school or a rival at college or a colleague from an early job. Sometimes an enemy can become a friend quickly when you suddenly find common cause, when you're unified politically or with a task at work or by a larger disaster or conflict like a pandemic or earthquake that forces us all to work together. Sometimes our enemies even flat out apologize. Have you ever experienced this? It's jarring, isn't it? Because you feel this cognitive dissonance that in a way wants to keep thinking of that person as your enemy. But they just ended the causes for you holding them as an enemy with a few simple words. And sometimes you run into an old enemy and they are so nice to you. They forgot that you were enemies. Sometimes we realize only much later that perhaps this person never even knew that you considered them an enemy. They hurt you by accident, and no one ever told them that you were upset. So this long-running resentment is revealed to be a delusion that you held onto from your own side, sometimes for many years. You were suffering for no reason, and your so-called enemy oblivious that you were even upset. Thinking of your own personal enemies, and enemies in politics, business, and crime, it becomes helpful to imagine what specifically would have to happen for them to no longer be your enemy. Would they have to apologize or resign or do some specific thing or stop doing some other specific thing? In the course of making our minds more flexible, of seeing the changeable nature of relationships, it becomes useful to imagine how they could actually do this, what they could do to make amends. Imagine your worst enemy apologizing, resigning, giving up the views that upset you, reversing their policies. Notice how this softens your mind, how it makes your mind more spacious, more open to even consider this possibility. This is a mental exercise, a meditation technique to equalize your mind. But it's only effective because change is genuinely possible. Our enemy could actually change, and he or she is in the process of changing right now. We just don't know how. And of course, a friend can easily turn into an enemy or stranger. Almost all of us have had a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or wife, or a partner who became a stranger, or even an enemy, after you parted ways. Or we can recall a best friend that we fell out with, who we lost our close connection with, either suddenly or slowly over time. It's useful to recall that besides our immediate family, all our other relationships started out as strangers. Can you remember the moment that you met one of your dearest friends or your partner? Recall how they appeared to you when you first met them. 
there was a moment, maybe even a long stretch of time, when they were a stranger to you. Think back to that moment of your first meeting. Maybe they didn't even notice you. Did they look serious or focused or amused by something else? Similarly, with your enemies, there was a time they were a neutral stranger, maybe even a mild friend, before your conflict arose. And these relationships continue to change. The present moment isn't the end of change, where all of a sudden our relationships become fixed today. Relationships continue to change into the future. And for each of us, there might be a stranger out there in the world right now, alive, breathing, walking, talking, who will become a dear friend, our next partner, maybe our partner through the end of our life, holding our hand as we lie on our deathbed. Imagine this for a moment and see how the possibility for new relationships is a beautiful latent potential in the world around us, one that we play an active role in cultivating. It's important to remember that this technique of equanimity isn't some spacey belief that visualizing your enemy changing will really change them, that our mental projection is some form of mind control that will make them do whatever we wish. The point is to bring your mind into alignment with the ever-changing nature of reality, a universal truth, to realize that your hard views of enemy, friend, and stranger are inaccurate, and that all our relationships are fluid and flexible. Keeping this in mind, keeping our mind free from anger toward enemies and biased attachment toward loved ones makes us more effective at taking care of others and even of changing the world. Consider beings who have mastered this point of view, like the Dalai Lama. If you've ever come face to face with him or someone like him, it can feel disconcerting the equal level of affection and respect that he offers everyone he encounters. A friend of mine had the privilege of offering the Dalai Lama a gift at the beginning of public teachings, and his gift was a beautiful Buddhist tanka, one of those rolled-up Tibetan paintings of Buddhas that you may have seen. My friend said that as he handed the Dalai Lama this gift, he felt such a deep sense of love and affection, acceptance and understanding from His Holiness, and sense of being fully known, down to the core, loved even for his faults, so happy to offer such a fine gift to his teacher. Then, in the afterglow backstage, the next person in line behind my friend walked up to him and said, look at this beautiful tanka the Dalai Lama just gave me. And my friend said he actually felt jealous, wanting the Dalai Lama's affection biased toward him. I appreciated my friend's honesty in telling his story. And it echoed similar feelings I've had when meeting great teachers, feeling disconcerted at the equal love and attention they freely give and realizing that I wanted them to treat me as if I were special, more important than other students. Equanimity is the ultimate non-discrimination, filling our minds with a genuine understanding of how relationships actually are, impermanent, always changing. Our enemy could become a friend. Our friend could become a stranger. And a stranger has the potential to become the dearest one to us on earth. The structured analytical meditation on equanimity gradually fills us with respect and affection for all beings, based on both the impermanent nature of relationships and also upon our universal human rights, that we all want to be happy, that none of us wants to suffer, and that happiness for everyone, even our enemies, would make the world a better place. At first, this meditation takes work, but eventually, equanimity moves from an effortful exercise 
to something we feel instinctually whenever we see or even think about another human being. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. Thanks to Christian Parry for mastering this episode, Jason Waterman for marketing, Isabella Acebal for digital production and social media, and Skeptics Path's producer, Stephen Butler, for his insights into our shared efforts to adapt this profound tradition to a modern secular audience. And thanks again for listening. If you have any feedback, whether how we can improve or what's working for you in these episodes, it's always welcome at our website or through any of our social accounts.